This is episode 90 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2014 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jared Wilson. This is session three from Tuesday night, titled, The Gospel's Superiority to the Law. Well, I have quite a bit of um, theology to share with you this evening. I hope that's okay. Normally for room of pastors and ministry leaders, it's a little bit more okay than it's just the, you know, the average uh, layperson. You guys love theology, right? So I I'm quite a bit, I, um, I think, to dump on you. Uh, but I do hope to, um, I plan to, in tomorrow evening's session, share with you um, some of my personal story of what um, I like to call gospel wakefulness, and it will speak to where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, but for tonight, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11. We're using these verses as sort of the jumping off points to see um, the trajectory that Paul is on, not just in this passage, not just in this letter, but really his entire ministry. Um, he has been so um, enthralled. Um, I think his conversion experience really sort of dictated the tone of his ministry. I mean, how could it not have? But the vision of Christ, the, um, he was captured by that vision. Um, in some sense, he says, I was apprehended, really, like I was waylaid or hijacked by the gospel. And of course, it changed him. And so everything that he teaches in relation to grace comes from that idea that to see the glory of Christ is so transforming, is so enthralling, is so transfixing that you shouldn't even hardly speak of anything else. And so we certainly see that in this chapter. How for Paul, a man of the law, who had all of the merit badges, who had all of the trophies, to be able to say, and it's garbage compared to what I see in Christ. We have seen in this chapter so far that the gospel goes after the heart. It's not simply concerned with behavior modification. Certainly the gospel changes the way we behave. It changes the way that we act. It changes the way that we live. It really transforms us. So that we want to do different things. We want to be in repentance and walk in the spirit. But it does that not by conforming us to some set of rules. But first of all by transforming our heart. Transforming our affections. Our appetites. We do different things because we desire different things. And as such we understand then that the gospel is supernatural. It's not something that we just saw a list and thought, I'm going to conform to this list. No, the light shone into our heart. The Holy Spirit came and quickened us, woke us up, and, and something like the smelling salts were put under our nose, or even stronger, a defibrillator was put on us to break us out of our coma, out of our spiritual death, in order to see Christ as beautiful, to choose Christ. Because he has chosen us. And so in understanding that, then we come to understand that the gospel, the good news of the finished work of Christ, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. We may even add in his ascension and his coming return, all of which is part of the good news and is good news. It announces to us the fulfillment and the superseding of the law. In fact, Paul's argument is, and our position should be, that the law is good for what the law is meant to do, but the gospel is better. So it's not to say that the law is bad or that we should not um, preach the law in the sense that the scriptures preach the law. 
But to see the way that the scriptures preach the law is to understand that the law is subservient to the gospel, that the gospel is superior to the law. And so I hope to show you that in this passage and then sort of tease out the ways that the gospel is superior to the law. Let's begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and once again we're going to ask the Father to send the Spirit and illuminate the text to us in such a way that we find the Son satisfying and glorious. Heavenly Father, we do ask that. That is our request. Father, we believe your word you say that in the fullness of your Son, there is grace upon grace. And so we ask that you would have us, as Calvin says, drink of this fountain and no other. That we would find the living water in your Son. That we would find the bread of life in your Son. That we would say to anyone, religious or not, who might distract us, who might tempt us, who might ask if we would like to leave, that we would say, to whom shall we go? Only Christ has the word of life. And so we pray that you would refresh us, that you would nourish us in the living word, through your written word, which is itself living and active this evening. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now you likely know what he is referring to in this passage. He's going to elaborate some more. We'll see that in the next passage that we look at tomorrow night as he extends some of the argument. He, he shows us a little bit of a twist, this idea of the glory fading, that, he, that Moses was trying to hide that the glory was fading. That's not um, immediately clear from um, the original text, from um, what he's referring to, but we know that... Uh, you know, Paul is giving us increasing revelation here, so he's helping us see what um, entirely was going on back then. But what he's doing, at least here in this passage, is recalling for us Moses communing with God on Mount Sinai, Moses um, being the mediator, so to speak, between the children of Israel and God. And because the majesty of God, the splendor of God, the radiance of God, of God was so intense, so bright, so glorious... His face would glow. His face would radiate, as it were. The radiant glory of God reflected off of Moses' face was so intense that he would then take a veil to cover his face to shield the children of Israel from that intensity. But as stark and as intense and as awe-inspiring as that glory was, I mean, that has to be really bright to have that effect. And Paul is saying as bright and as intense, as serious a deal as that was, it is eclipsed by the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what then does Paul say in this passage about the gospel in relation to the law? I think this thing, at least, to begin with. The gospel is better than the law because it goes further. It goes further than the law. 
The gospel goes further than the law goes. Verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's doing, he's getting out the measuring stick, you know, he's, he's seeing how much glory is in, in each component, and he's comparing and contrasting, and he's seeing, oh, the gospel of grace, the ministry of the Spirit has way more glory than this thing that has a lot of glory in itself. It's extra strength. It's super improved glory here. Well, we might ask then, well, what does the Spirit do now in and through the gospel that it didn't do, that he didn't do in and through the law? Well, the law goes for quite a ways. You know, um, have you ever read Leviticus? <laughs> yeah, I feel sorry for some of my people who do those Bible through a year plans, especially if it's like starting from the beginning because they get into like March, April, and they're in Leviticus, and there goes the New Year's resolution. There's some things in Leviticus that I think you didn't need to tell me not to do that. I have no desire to do that. <laughs> Very strange that you even say that. It, Leviticus is so heavy, it's so long. I mean, it, 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 it covers, does it not? I mean, it, it dots every I and crosses every T. And that's just one part. It's just one sliver of the commandments that we get in the Pentateuch, for instance, or even in all of the scriptures, if we're going to categorize every imperative as law. As I think Paul even tends to do. The law goes for quite a ways. It's very heavy. It's very thorough. But the gospel goes, as it were, a second mile. There is the minimum of the law, which is in itself very complete, very thorough. And then the gospel super fulfills that or goes even beyond that. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, you may be required to go with someone for a mile. Now, license, of course, would have us disobey the command altogether, run in the other direction. The law would have us obey what is required to go one mile. They ask for a mile, I'm going to go one mile. But the grace that is in the gospel trains us to do the minimum and more. It wants us to bless the person who is putting the burden of the law on us. So someone wants a mile from you, go two miles with them. Does someone ask for your coat? Give them your shirt as well. It's not what they're asking for, but it's what the gospel might inspire you to do. Think of the way the gospel is um, the second mile compared to the law in your marriage relationship. If we simply follow the law, we might be okay. We would treat our spouses fairly. We would treat our spouses kindly. We would treat our spouses well. But captured by Christ and his gracious gospel, husbands don't just avoid being mean to their wives. They cherish them. They adore them. They protect them. They nourish them. They love them sacrificially and selflessly. And wives don't just respect their husbands as the law would require. They submit to them. There wasn't an amen for that. <laughs> Not even from a man. No. <laughs> In fact, here's what I think the gospel does. As it seeks this, as it provides this middle and better way, this third way between license and legalism, it takes the sort of hedonistic, like, you know, the, the excess, the overabundant affections of license and hedonism and applies them to the requirements of the law. So that it's not that the law is even a burden anymore, the law becomes a delight. 
How does the law become sweet to the taste like honey, as the psalmist says? Your word is delicious. Your law is delicious. Is the law delicious? It is if you understand that you are free from it. If you understand that you're free from the curse of the law, then you're free to obey with great joy. In fact, obedience becomes not this uh, duty necessarily. It becomes an act of worship. Christ has transformed me. I, 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 I adore him. Why wouldn't I obey him? Why wouldn't I want to serve him? Why wouldn't I want to follow him? So the gospel takes the affectionate ex excess of licentiousness and it is channeled by grace to go above and beyond the fulfillment of the letter of the law. So think of it this way. God and Christ did not simply tolerate us. He has, according to Ephesians chapter 1, lavished the riches of his grace upon us. He's gone above and beyond. So the gospel is not a bare minimum thing. We might apply it to the area of financial giving. Paul urges the middle and better way of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And our reasoning might go like this. The lawful thing to do would be to give. And for many people, 10% sounds about right. It's a, it's a good rule of thumb, the, the tithe. The disobedient thing, of course, would be not to give at all. That would be disobedience. But the gospel comes to the heart first, not to the hands. And we ask ourselves, how generous was God in Christ? And how might that affect our giving? Tim Keller says, Jesus didn't tithe his blood, after all. So in contemplating that, I think, you know, Christ gave what was needed for the joy that was set before him, even though it cost him, even though it killed him. So the gospel provides the grounds for sacrificial, joyful giving. I don't give under compulsion. I don't give under reluctance. I give according to the measure of the gospel's dominion in my heart. The excess of the all-out of stinginess is applied to the requirement to give so that it becomes an all-in of generosity. According to the gospel, in repentance, I pursue holiness as zealously as, zealously as I pursued sin in unrepentance, with much more affection for God than I afforded my idols. And only the gospel can empower such a thing. Over and over and over again, Jesus shows us this middle and better way. You've heard not to kill I say, don't hate. You've heard, don't commit adultery. I say, not to lust. It's a lot easier not to kill somebody than it is not to hate them. The law would say, don't kill them. The gospel would transform our heart to say, I'm not going to objectify this person. I'm going to see them as someone who is made in the image of God. The gospel has transformed me. I understand God's grace in such a way that I want to have that grace then extend to others. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. The law would just have us tolerate them or avoid them, and in some cases, prosecute them. And so the gospel comes in, comes in and it, it explodes these legal categories. It fulfills them, but it explodes them. It explodes even niceness or politeness, toleration. So that in Romans 12.10, Paul would say, outdo one another, showing honor. Don't just tolerate each other. Is that, is that a gospel-centered church? Maybe that's the beginning of one. But the goal would be to outdo one another in showing honor. 
The gospel would have us turn the impulse for revenge inside out until it's a gracious forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He has not just met the requirements of the law. He has signaled the end of the law. He has not just justified us, but he has sanctified us and glorified us. He has not just pardoned us, but he has united us to himself. He's not just given us life, but he's given us life abundant. So now we look through the gospel at the law and we see it differently as a delight. We see other people not as projects or impediments, but image bearing opportunities to make Jesus look very big. The gospel is the better way because it takes the excesses of the hedonistic polarity and applies them in spiritual power to the aims of the religious polarity. It's the better way because it takes the energy of license and applies it to the implications of the law. The ministry of the Spirit in this way receives so much more glory than it would if you just filled in the blanks. The gospel goes further than the law will go. The foundational proof of this is how endless the, the rituals of the law seemed until Christ put an end to them. And I love the phrase that you see numerous times in the book of Hebrews, once for all. He has no need to make continual sacrifices. He is the mediator to end all mediators. He is the great high priest. The endless conveyor belt of bloodshed the mechanism of religious atonement that had to just keep going on and on and on and on, finally stopped, set aside. He nails it to the cross and leaves it dead. Casting our sins into the depths of the sea, remembers them no more. This is what Christ has done. Secondly, by going further than the law can go, the gospel is better than the law because the gospel actually brings salvation. Now, this is the most obvious point. We all understand, every good evangelical understands, and hopefully every evangelical pastor understands, that we are not saved by works of the law. So this point should seem very obvious to you. But, brothers and sisters, let's revel in this. That the gospel is what brings salvation. That it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Or in verse 9, Paul says, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Righteousness, the ministry of righteousness. You'd think that's what the law should be called because the law shows us this is what you must do to be righteous. This is what righteousness looks like. Instead, Paul contrasts the law, calling it the ministry of condemnation, with Something else called the ministry of righteousness. What he is helping us see is that the law demands righteousness, but it cannot supply righteousness. Instead, the gospel is the ministry of righteousness because it announces not just the blank slate of sins being wiped away, but in one of the great depths of the gospel, one of the things that makes the good news so good is that Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins, he credits his righteousness to us. What we might call the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So he clears out all of the debits in our account and doesn't just say, well, good luck. We'll start from scratch, see how it goes. He fills it all up with the credits of his own perfect obedience. What a great savior we have. 
That God would look at us, that the Father would look at us and see the Son. See His perfect righteousness credited to us. The gospel does what the law cannot do. The law cannot give life. Its power is only for the ministry of condemnation. It reveals to us what we must do, yes. But in doing so, it holds up the, the measuring stick. I think anyone who thinks they are doing really, really well at the law thing has not read all of it yet. I'm still hung up on love your neighbor as yourself. Like just that one right there. I, I don't measure up. I mean, forget all the other stuff. I can't even get beyond this. So it, in the law, I'm told what to do, and, and, and I'm not meant to ignore that. We're not, we're not saying you just ignore the command. But as you look at the command and say, this is what I, I have to do, you also see, I can't, I can't do this perfectly. There's no way I can measure it. In fact, the further I go, the further behind I find myself. I think one of the marks of sanctification, that you are progressing in holiness, you are progressing in sanctification in Christ's likeness, is you begin to see more and more sin in your life. Not less and less. You begin to see more things to repent of. I was speaking at a conference in Maine once, and a fellow came up to me during one of the breaks. And he told me this long story about you know, his marriage relationship and what was going on in, in, in his house and how difficult it was to live with his wife. And he was saying to me, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. He's saying to me, you know, I, 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 I asked the Lord, you know, I prayed the prayer, search my heart, find any wicked way in me, tell him, show me what it is. And he shows me all these things and I'm repenting of all those things and he's not shown me anything else. And so, you know, I, I, I've repented of, you know, of everything. And, and so, like, I don't know, I think I'm, I think I'm done. <laughs> and I said, well, I can think of one thing. <laughs> Maybe self-righteousness? Maybe. As you and I look out at the world, you're flipping through the cable news or scrolling on the internet to see. For me, it's not, I don't even have to go look at the news, I just scroll through Facebook and see some of the things even, especially young people in my church, what they put on Facebook. And that indignation comes up. Sometimes it's not indignation, it's just that fatherly kind of, oh, they're gonna, I need to talk to them. The gospel does what the law cannot do. As we look out at the world and see these things before us, we think we know what will fix everything. We just will tell people that they need to get their act together. I, I mean, I know what's wrong. I'm just going to tell them what's up. You need to get your act together. The reality that the scriptures show us about the broken and lost world is this. Not a millisecond of our complaints against the world will change a single heart. What will transform the hearts of the people in the world, the, the people in your church? Not one ounce of nagging will do that. And so, brothers, especially you brothers who preach, I would say that it is possible and you need to be aware of this, alert for this. It's something I have to constantly come back to myself is to ask myself, is my preaching inadvertently increasing sin? Actually. Now, I want to tread lightly here, but 
I think we vastly underestimate the spiritual damage inflicted on our churches by what we might call how-to sermons. How-to sermons without an explicit gospel connection. Again, as I said earlier, it's not to say that the Bible is not practical. The Bible is full of practical exhortations. It's full of commands. But all of these exhortations and all of these commands are connected to the foundational and empowering truth of the finished work of Christ. And when we lose that, when we disconnect the commands and the exhortations from the finished work of Christ, when we snap that tether, really, or we load up the entire sermon with the practical exhortations and tack on a gospel invitation at the end. Do you know what we're really communicating? When we preach a message like six steps to, or be a better whatever, where the essential proclamation is not what Christ has done, but what we ought to do or need to do, we become preachers of the law rather than preachers of Christ. And you think, no, that's, that's not true. I came out of a, a fundamentalist background that was always so you know, condemning, it was always so thou shalt not, it was very hellfire and brimstone. I don't do that. I think the scriptures show us that this kind of preaching isn't simply about thou shalt not. Even a positive practical message with no gospel centrality amounts to preaching the law. We're accustomed to thinking of legalistic preaching as that which is full of the thou shalt nots. And most of us have rightly rejected that. But do is just the flip side of the law coin. It's on the opposite side of don't. So it's, that coin is the law. And a list of do's divorced from the done of the gospel is just as legalistic as a list of don'ts. Divorced from the gospel. So as we can see, the message of the law, unaccompanied by, untethered from the central message of the gospel, of the finished work of Christ, does not empower people, actually, but condemns them. Paul's calling it the ministry of condemnation. It doesn't feel that way, because everything's very contemporary, and you know, maybe you've got the fog machine going, or I don't know what you have. I come out of a fog machine church in my background, so I'll have to pick on that. Even if it looks like that, even if it feels positive, even if it's peppy and upbeat and contemporary and relevant, if it is untethered from the finished work of Christ, if you're just laying dues on people, you are burdening them and perhaps even condemning them. I know you're not meaning to do this. We're not meaning to do this. I'm not trying to do that when I forget the gospel. Because besides telling us stuff to do, the law also reveals our utter, our utter inability to measure up. So, a steady dose of gospel-deficient practical preaching doesn't make Christians more empowered and more effective, but actually more discouraged and less empowered. And I want to share more about that tomorrow evening as part of my story. Because the law has no power in itself to fulfill its expectations. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son. The Bible even goes further. When I say we may inadvertently increase sin in our church by preaching gospel deficient practical messages. This is what I mean. 
Without the gospel of Christ's finished work, the preaching of law may work to exacerbate disobedience. We see this, for instance, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. We see it in Romans 7, I think. The law arouses passions eventually against itself. In other words, without the saving power of the gospel, we go one of two ways in having the law preached to us. We end up being pushed to disobey, whether out of anger at its judgment or just discouragement from the inability to, to keep up with it. Or, perhaps worse and more subtle, but something that many of us will settle for in our churches, we end up thinking ourselves righteous apart from the righteousness of Christ. Like, don't just think that wanton hedonism, licentiousness, is the only kind of sin people can exhibit. A religious, obedient, spiritual person who doesn't love Jesus, who doesn't trust Jesus, is just as simple. And when we preach how-to law sermons instead of the gospel, we might end up with a bunch of well-behaved spiritual corpses. The preaching of Christless, gospel-deficient, practical sermons increases self-righteousness because it is not focused on Christ's work, but on our works. So Christ in implicit rather than Christ explicit, gospel-deficient rather than gospel-abundant, practical sermons do not make empowered, victorious Christians like they, it means to, like we mean to do with those sermons, but self-righteous, self-sovereigns. Romans 7.10 says the law brings death. So the preaching of practical, relevant, applicational, due messages aimed at producing victorious Christians is fundamentally a preaching of condemnation. It is the proclamation of grace. This is so counterintuitive. We have the same objection fundamentally that Paul anticipates. If you just preach grace, they're going to think they can do whatever they want. Do we just sin all the more so we get more grace? That's ridiculous. How will they know what to do if we don't just keep hammering what to do? We begin by trusting the Holy Spirit. That what he has revealed in his word is true. That it is grace, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, that trains us to renounce ungodliness. Grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. I think the stakes are very high. So let us preach the practical implications and exhortations of Scripture. It, they're in the Bible. You don't not preach stuff that's in the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But let us not forget that the message of Christianity is Christ. It is the message of the sufficiency and power of salvation by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Let's not preach works lest we increase the sinfulness of our churches and unwittingly facilitate the condemnation of the lost. As we saw in the previous passage, only the gospel is the power of salvation. But the gospel's power of salvation extends beyond justification as it grounds our sanctification and glorification as well. You can think of the golden chain that you see there in Romans. You can think of 1 Corinthians 15, the way Paul says you received it past tense, you're standing in it present tense, you are being saved by it present future tense. Of course, every evangelical Christian would affirm, even if he or she couldn't express it quite like you could, Pastor, that Christians are saved by God's grace, received through their faith, and it's apart from their own good works. I mean, that's the hallmark of evangelical Christianity. We're saved 
by faith alone. But we still struggle in muddling grace and law, especially in the area of sanctification. Especially in the area of sanctification. Even the gospel-centered guys are arguing about this. Right? I don't know if you follow those debates, but I, I get asked a lot, are you, are you of Tolian or are you of Dion? <laughs> and I say, yes. <laughs> the implicit idea seems to be that the gospel is our entry ticket, but the law then sort of keeps us in line for the ride. But this assumption, Martin Luther says, is as though Christ were a workman who began the building for Moses to finish. And he's drawing from what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you going to complete this by the flesh? What the Christian church needs today in its imperfect fumbling back to the beauty of gospel centrality is a stubborn unmuddling of law and grace. We must preach both. You, the good news sounds good because you preach the bad news of the law. You're not lopping the law out of the message. You must preach sin so that people know what they're being forgiven of. You must preach hell so they know what they're being saved from. You must preach the law so they know what Christ has fulfilled for them. But we cannot continue to treat the gospel as if it is the power of God for a conversion experience, but not for total life transformation. Sanctification and justification are events, so to speak, in the golden chain of salvation, but both are equally powered by the gospel of grace. Christians are commanded to obey unequivocally. Yes, they are commanded to obey. Are there demands upon our life in the service of God's kingdom? Yes, unequivocally. Yes, there are demands upon our life. And the enduring law of commandments, which is good, provides our blueprint for what life built in worship of God looks like. But the law itself is not able to supply what it demands. The law will not change a heart. The law cannot cure idolatry. It can only reveal it. And the startling reality is this. The gospel actually empowers its own implications. Where the law of religion says, get to work, the gospel says, it is finished. It's finished. And as long as we are clinging to get to work, we will live power-free lives. Ralph Erskine once said, to demand life change by the law is to demand bricks without straw. But if we cling to the cross of Christ, remaining aware of our own powerlessness, and desperately trusting that the work of atonement is finished, we will find the power and peace to worshipfully work in freedom and with joy. This is a poem that's often attributed to John Bunyan. I, I, I think more recently they've traced it to John Berridge. And it goes like this. It's about the gospel of sanctification. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel is superior to the law because it actually, actually saves us. Thirdly, the gospel is better than the law because the gospel has eternal power. The gospel is better than the law because the gospel has eternal power. There's something that Paul is developing here which is rather interesting. To suggest, perhaps even implicitly, but not really implicitly, especially in verse 11, 
that the law is coming to an end. I mean, think of this. When we are in heaven, when we are glorified finally, when we are delivered into glory, the new heavens and the new earth have been ushered in. Christ reigns over the earth. We have no need of the Son because the Lamb is the Lamb. We won't need the law because there will be no sin to restrain. Perfectly glorified, reflecting the Son, empowered by the Spirit, for all eternity we will worship God without needing the law to compel us to do that. And so as Paul is picturing this, as he's seeing this world, you know, that world to come rushing towards this world, he is thinking to himself, the law is passing away. If Christ has set it aside, if Christ has died there, the law has died with Christ, and so we're not under the curse of the law anymore, and when the restoration of the cosmos comes, when the restoration of creation comes, and sin and death are thrown into the lake of fire, and there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no wickedness in the new heavens and the new earth, what, what will remain? If, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, now he's speaking of the old covenant getting with the new covenant, but I think he's looking even beyond that, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law is passing away, but the gospel is permanent. The gospel is eternal. Why? Well, the gospel's power is eternal because, as we heard this morning, the gospel's power comes from the eternal Holy Spirit himself. But further, the gospel's power is eternal because the gospel's power is sourced in the fullness of God, not just the Holy Spirit, but the entirety of Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. In the gospel, all the divine hands are on deck. I think we see a picture of the gospel's Trinitarian shape in Jesus' high priestly prayer. But we also see it succinctly sort of boiled down for us, distilled for us, in um, the Apostle Peter's um, first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when he writes, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. So Peter has essentially revealed what Fred Sanders would call the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. In his book, The Deep Things of God, Sanders goes on to say, the gospel is Trinitarian and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity and brings us home to the Trinity. Now, we're doing theology here, but I find it delicious. Maybe that's just me. I mean, it sounds to some people like, I mean, you're just doing this academic thing. But for me to contemplate the idea that the gospel has the shape of the Trinity, that every person of the Trinity is at work in saving me, that makes me really happy. What we're seeing, actually, is not a bit of God's godness is held back from us. The Father doesn't say, well, you guys handle it. Instead, he loves us from before the world began, from the foundation of the world. And the Son has even agreed before the foundation of the world. I, I know this is going to happen. 
I agree to do that. And the Spirit has agreed before the foundation of the world. What we are seeing is that as God is needing to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, He is not stingy with Himself. He is hands-on. So the Father commissions the work, and the Son accomplishes the work, and the Spirit applies the work. And because the eternal God at work in the gospel, is bringing all of himself to bear, it makes sense that the gospel would give us eternal life. Only the infinite glorious God can give us a glory that is permanent. And in fact, envelops us in himself, unites us to Christ by the power of the Spirit, because it well pleases the Father. Fourthly, the gospel is better than the law because the gospel gives God more glory. The gospel is better than the law because the gospel gives God more glory. What you see in this passage is this refrain, more glory, more glory, exceeding glory, surpassing glory. This is not just the effect produced by the gospel as if glory is just this sort of um, um, special effect that's coming out of the work that's being done. It is the credit that is being shown into God himself. It is the worthiness that is being ascribed to God himself. So that in the last day, those who are redeemed would say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. What the gospel is meant to do, the gospel is for us, yes, but it is not ultimately about us. What the gospel is meant to do as it comes and saves us is produce glory that goes to God, that he would be the center of all things. So even though God authors the law, the gospel he has determined will give him more glory than the law does. How does this happen? One of the most profound questions that um, one of my children has asked me, I was my older daughter, she doesn't ask a whole lot of theological questions, the younger one tends to ask more theologically probing questions, but one day I was driving my older daughter home from school and she said, Dad, if, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he create them? Like if he knew that was going to happen, why would he do that? Now, you know, she was probably 10 years old at the time. But it wasn't a 10-year-old question. It's a question that I get asked by adults in our adult Bible study. We've been talking about sovereignty and the suffering, suffering and the sovereignty of God in our adult Bible study, which has led to all kinds of questions. Where did sin come from? Like if all there was was God and he created everything good, and like where did sin, like where did that happen? Oh, okay. Um, Get back to you on that one. Why, why did God create Adam and Eve knowing that they were going to fall? I mean, if you believe in the traditional view of his omniscience, you know, you're not an open theist or anything like that, you believe he can see into the future. He has prescient foreknowledge as well as relational foreknowledge. So he knew it was going to happen, and so he set it up, made them good, but gave them free will. But he knew it was going to happen. Why would he do that? And this was the only thing that I could come up with at the time. I said, I, I really don't know. But I think for whatever reason, something that's in God's mind that we maybe can't understand or comprehend, he decided 
So as if he were a storyteller, I mean, everything in, in the scriptures is true. I believe Adam and Eve are historical figures and that sort of thing. But assuming that, that God is a storyteller and he's writing this grand story, for some reason he decided that this story, this version of the story, would give him more glory than any other version of, the story, of stories. Like any alternative that we could come up with, he would say, that doesn't give me as much glory as the one that I decided to do. And so I, I started following that rabbit trail, sort of thinking, well, I mean, how is that even true? Like, how might that be true? That this version of the story would give him more glory than alternative versions. Like, if they had never fallen, for instance. I mean, that would be a glorious story, would it not? No sin? But then I began to think, if there were no sin for God to redeem people from, we wouldn't know, for instance, about um, some of his attributes. Like, that he is a holy God. He is a vengeful God. He is a wrathful God. And at the same time, if there were no sin to redeem, we wouldn't know that he was a God of mercy and grace and a God of love. At least not in the same way. If there were no sin to love people in spite of. So the gospel reveals things about God's loving character that we wouldn't have known without it. The gospel gives God more glory than the law because the gospel is the news that we are saved entirely by God, not of ourselves. Obviously, this gives God glory, more glory, than if we got the credit. So the more that we tell the story of the gospel as opposed to preaching the law, the more glory we're going to give God. Because if you're preaching law, people can say, well, I can do some of those things, and then there's a little bit of glory they get. But if you're preaching the gospel, you're showing them everyone has sinned and fallen short of glory. And so if you preach the gospel, you're giving more glory to God than if you preach the law. In fact, God's desire for his own glory is reflected in the gospel. Firstly, the gospel of forgiveness of sins through Christ is predicated on our needing forgiveness. Which means we have a complete inability to provide the restitution that we need to merit forgiveness. So the gospel presupposes our lack of glory. Secondly, though Christ the God-man makes this restitution for us himself on the cross, which gives God the glory for salvation. Then he, he, he also goes to that cross willingly. Nobody murders him except that he has allowed them to. And that takes the infamy of blame off of the perpetrators and transfers it to the credit of the sacrifice. Jesus is not a victim. I mean, in one superficial sense he is, but all along the way, he's saying, don't you think if I wanted legions of angels to show up and fix this whole thing, I, I couldn't command that? Nobody takes my life from me. I give it willingly. The God-man then, after making the sacrifice of himself, doesn't stay dead. But he rises on the third day through the power of the Spirit with a glorified body. So God even gets more glory. Then he ascends into heaven and he gives himself even more glory. Then he sends the Spirit to grant us the gift of faith in receiving Christ's work so that he would get even more glory in the gospel's acceptance. You chose Christ because he chose you first. Therefore, he gets more glory than you do. He sees then that the gospel spreads into the farthest reaches of the earth because he wants even more glory. He wants the earth to be covered with the knowledge of his glory. 
And finally, he will return again to establish his kingdom once for all. There's lots of glory there. And he's judging the quick and the dead. He's giving, getting even more glory there. And he's replacing the sun with the radiance of his glory. And now glory saturation is approaching 100%. All to the glory of God. At each point in the gospel's design, implementation, application, and forecast, God is at the very center taking the credit and establishing his own authority and majestic splendor. This is something that Paul gets at quite artfully, I think, in Galatians chapter 3. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And so the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Talk about Moses. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, as I was preaching through Galatians with our church, this verse gave me real headaches. Okay? The law is put in place through angels by an intermediary. An intermediary implies more than one. I'm tracking with it. But God is one. Well, I know that. I don't understand why you're making that connection. So I started to try to suss it out. And of course, we have the shoulders of theological giants to stand on and to help us. The first few commentaries I looked at were no help at all, including Calvin's. That really torqued me up. But I, th I think I found it, okay? Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. Maybe you've preached on this and you can help me afterwards. But this is what I think is taking place here. The law was put in place via angels through Moses. We see this affirmed in Acts chapter 7, verse 38 and verse 53. We see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Deuteronomy 33, 2 tells us that the law came to Sinai by 10,000 holy ones. That's a pretty impressive statement. An intermediary implies more than one, Paul says. So there are several links in the chain of command from God via his 10,000 holy ones to Moses. Then after Moses to all of the people. And let's not forget to factor in the priests and the ceremonial rites and the regulations that went along with all of the legal mechanism. In order to deliver and then to administer the law, teamwork, as they say, makes the dream work. But Galatians 3.20 says, but God is one. So why is the gospel better than the law? Why is Jesus more glorious than any other intermediary? Because it is God himself doing the job himself for the people himself all by himself. That's what I think he means. I might be wrong. That's what I think he means. Consider the exhaustive and the exhausting comprehensiveness and rigor that the law entails. Multiply then that by the glory that radiated on Moses' face, that was transmitted on mountaintop in 10,000 flaming angels. Multiply that by precise measurements, a routine cycle of sacrifices, every T crossed attention to detail. Now consider that Christ Jesus is more glorious than that, more precise, more fulfilling, more encompassing than all of that. And then consider that Jesus doesn't just hold up his end of the covenant of righteousness, he holds up our end too. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He does his job and our job. The law is good. It's good for what it's designed to do, but Jesus is much, much better. 
In essence, the gospel most glorifies God because it announces that God has saved us from himself, to himself, through himself, by himself, for himself. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites would not, could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. By comparison, because of the glory that surpasses it. So here we see how the gospel is God's glory because it brings to us the benefit of his self-sufficiency. It proclaims how our needless God saves needy people. It's a benefit to us because God does all by himself what we could not do, even with the help of the law. And because it gives us the joy of knowing that our perfect God employed his perfection for his imperfect creatures. The gospel, William Cooper writes, so much exceeds in glory that it eclipses the glory of the legal as the stars disappear when the sun rises. And the S-O-N sun has risen. He has ascended to his place in glory. Where he rules in splendor until the day he brings his children home. And swallows them up in glory forever. We'll exult in that promise in our next session together. The supremacy of Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's so much. There's so much to take in. There's so much to see. It is no wonder that the gospel is something into which angels long to look. Perhaps because it's not before them. Uh, it's not for them, Father. Maybe it's because it's for us and that makes it interesting. I think also because it is so deep, it is endlessly fascinating. It is eternally fascinating. And so I thank you. We thank you together. We summon up all of the energy that you have given us, all the humility that you have birthed in us by your spirit to ascribe all glory and praise and honor and strength to you. You alone are worthy. Father, when we find our way into your glory through your Lord's return or just passing away and you bring us home, Help us to remember in these moments in our flesh that we will not show up and say, worthy am I to be here. But worthy is the Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. In our lives, Father, in our attempts at obedience, in our repentance, as we seek to make practical what you have told us to do, Help us to live in such a way that what we are saying is not of ourselves, but that our lives sing through grace. May the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. That we would adorn Him. That we would be but jewels in the crown of Your Son. Would be our only hope. By the grace of Your Son and the power of Your Spirit, we ask that You would help us to do this. Cannot do it on our own. We thank you, God, that you love us. <coughs> that you love us so well and so deeply, so eternally. Help us to bask in the favor that you've given us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.